Good evening and welcome to The Dark Art, horror with heartfelt appreciation from two lifelong fanatics. My name is Jake Conrad. And my name is Marin Mascaro. The Dark Art is a double bill, and it's a Christmas creature feature for this episode. Tonight, we'll be starting with a long-standing staple of both pop culture and the holidays, the charming and oft-terrifying 80s classic, Gremlins. Paired with 2015's Krampus, a campy take on what happens when the fearsome, frightened horned beast of German holiday legend comes to town. As a disclaimer, we must warn you that the dark art contains in-depth discourse on the subject of horror films, and therefore may contain descriptions of situations deemed frightening, traumatic, and inappropriate for children. And as a secondary warning, addressing the major plot points of these movies doesn't come without major spoilers for the films discussed. So as they say, enter if you dare. But mostly because we find out Santa isn't real in these in Gremlins. <gasps> what? I know. <laughs> so. Oh, it's so tough to take. <laughs> Uh, I've known Santa isn't real for a long time. I'm Santa now. I'm sure you are also. Tonight for our film synopsis, we'll begin with Gremlins. A gadget salesman is looking for a special gift for his son Billy and finds one at a store in Chinatown. The shopkeeper is reluctant to sell him the Mogwai, but sells it to him with the warning to never expose the creature to bright light, allow him to get wet, or to feed him after midnight. After Billy inadvertently violates the rules, the result is a gang of gremlins that wreck havoc on the entire town on Christmas Eve. So Roger Ebert, in his uh, in his take on gremlins that he wrote back when it came out, his, I, he has a couple sentences that I thought were kind of fun. He said, Gremlins is a confrontation between Norman Rockwell's vision of Christmas and Hollywood's vision of the blood-sucking monkeys of Voodoo Island. It's fun... <laughs> On the other hand, on the one hand, you have an idyllic American small town with Burger Kings and Sears stores clustered merrily around the village square, and on the other hand, you have a plague of reprehensible little beasties who behave like a rodent road company of Marlon Brando's motorcycle gang in the Wild One. I thought that was really well said. <laughs> I agree. So watching this film was a treat for me because there are a lot of staples of the 80s that kind of pass me by just because you know my parents being the discerning parents that they were um, I was not allowed to watch a great deal of scary movies until I got older I was allowed to watch scary movies that were specifically geared towards kids and gremlins was one that they deemed was just on the edge and I didn't get to see that so Basically, I had never seen it all the way through start to finish. I'd seen clips, but I never sat down and watched it in one whole viewing. And I was so charmed by it. I was so excited to see just how great this film still is. So I think part of the greatness is you have a horror director who... um, what I'd read about Joe Dante at this point in his career, he had made Piranha and The Howling. He still hadn't, you know, later on he makes, uh, he did Twilight Zone, the movie. He does a section there. 
And then he actually directed The Burbs with Tom Hanks, which is one of my favorite um, horror-type comedies. But he was kind of um, broke. And when he got um, a notification from Spielberg that he was interested in having him direct this movie, he didn't believe it, actually. He was, he was kind of looking for a sandwich at that point more than anything. And then the writer of this movie, Chris Columbus, he go he went on to write, um, he wrote and directed Home Alone and Home Alone 2. And I mean, so he had, he had Christmas in mind with this. And I, it's funny, we had some friends during Halloween call and say, hey, can we borrow some, some horror movies from you guys? We'd like to have, we'd like Poltergeist. And we want Gremlins. And I'm, I said, no, Gremlins is a, it's a Christmas movie. You can't take Gremlins. That's Christmas. And they're like, no, it's not. It's horror. And I said, come on. This is a Christmas movie. So what do you think? Do you feel like this is a Christmas movie like I do? I do think this is a Christmas movie. I recently discussed on Facebook during the, you know, yearly debate over whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie <laughs> that the entire internet wants to weigh in on. I stated that my standard for whether something is a Christmas movie versus a movie that takes place at Christmas time is the answer to a single question. And that question is, could you remove Christmas from the plot entirely and the story would remain basically the same? By that standard, Gremlins passes. You cannot remove Christmas from this story without messing up the entire storyline. So yes, this is a Christmas movie. Well, and so, you know, a lot of people think of horror movies as B-movies, mostly because people, some people think horror movies are just trash. But I would say that the thing that makes this movie work is so many Christmas movies are actually B-movies, if you think about it. There are not very good special effects, never have been, even in some of the newer ones. Um, but it's a oh, little, all you'd have to do is watch the Har the Hallmark Channel or Netflix to know <laughs> well, what Christmas movies. Would be. <laughs> I'm thinking of things like uh, you know Santa Claus Seven or whatever they're up to now. Um, usually the dialogue's really simple and they're, they're formulaic, just like a horror movie. And so um, I felt like that was a great use of of both the putting Christmas in with horror actually started to be really big right about this time. In fact, Ghostbusters came out the same day as Gremlins uh, in the theaters, and they, they actually fought for people's attention, but they both had aspects of horror and comedy. And right around the same time, Gary Larson was coming out with The Far Side that was my favorite as a kid, horror and comedy, and, and, and this mixed together. Um, so... And plus, you know, Gremlins is talking about, in some ways, the dangers of, like, consumerism, which you hear all the time in, in holiday movies. You have the busy man who's, he buys his kid a little friend because he's never home. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, he buys his friend a companion because he's always gone and he can't provide otherwise. And uh, also the Gremlins, I guess, could, I've, I read that they could represent how difficult Christmas can be for so many people. So I don't know if that, that might be pushing it a little bit. It's true. And then we also had Phoebe Cates' character, you know, doing oh. the reveal mid-movie about how she hates Christmas because 
her father was attempting to play Santa for her and actually come down the chimney and he ended up dying. So, I mean, there's a lot of references to how the holidays isn't exactly um, a merry time for everyone. And that story, I remember my sister was still a believer in Santa, and I remember kind of side-eyeing her as Phoebe talked about her dad being... You know, they didn't find him till days later in the chimney because of the smell, I think. That that whole Santa speech, I guess uh, Steven Spielberg did not like that scene at all. And But Joe Dante was, like, super stubborn about it, which, you know, as a horror director, I can see why. He's trying to show something really horrific. Um, and Spielberg said, all right, you've got creative control, and he let him leave it in, and I... I think it works. I think it it gives a little bit of teeth to the the whole feeling because those gremlins can be so damn cute sometimes when they're in their leg warmers and break dancing, little sunglasses, yeah, eating bowls of popcorn and what have you. To me, that made this movie a horror movie. That story that she tells about Christmas, which is terrible. I mean, and also the scene in which the mother goes to work on eliminating those gremlins in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. I mean, seriously, this woman, <laughs> talk about an unsung scream queen. I mean, she fought back. She was resourceful. She used every gadget that was in that kitchen. She used the mixer. She used the microwave. She used all sorts of knives. The microwave, the microwave scene, I was a little surprised. I was like, wow, <laughs> that is a textbook horror gore element. And it, um, it these to. look so good. I when I was reading about like how they were trying to can't come up with how to make the gremlins, um, I think one of the I don't know who it was that suggested, hey, let's just get some monkeys and put gremlin suits on them. And I guess they actually tried this with terrible results. And so they was they were kind of talking about claymation type things or puppets and finally after the monkey about went berserk um they didn't like i guess to wear a, a mask i don't know why uh i guess that's when joe dante said all right we better try puppets and he had actually used puppets for the howling and so he knew one thing about puppets um and this was kind of let's talk about the rules of gremlins the rule number one is um they can't be shown they can't go out in the sunlight or they'll die and they uh they can't be exposed to bright light but joe dante said that that was just because he's his words those puppets look like shit if you show it put a light on them. <laughs> well you know creative writing saves the day right <laughs> right so the, the other rules um what did you think of these rules i thought that the water rule seemed almost impossible. <laughs> I was like, how, how is he going to keep this creature away from water forever? He doesn't, That, that seems entirely unreasonable. <laughs> he and doesn't plus, keep it away from water. I mean, they're drinking soda. They're, I mean, the biggest thing is they're walking around in the snow. And you can't tell me that when they walk in, after they have snow on their feet that there isn't some water going on there but it doesn't matter it's like a lot of rules in horror movies like um 
it, it works when it needs to, I guess. Oh, yeah. And the other rule about after midnight, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, didn't his father travel from a different time zone to... Right, time zone. maybe he didn't, but how do we know, like, where midnight is? Because right. Because you and I live in two different time zones. Midnight for you is not midnight for me. Is there one, is it, like, wherever the Mogwai was born, that's their midnight? And, and what is after midnight? So, like... Like, 8 a.m. is good, 7 a.m. is after midnight. Like, I don't know. And it doesn't matter because of, like, a lot of horror movie... Like, I mean, I, I tried re-watching The Candyman again recently, and I'm like, there's so many rules that I don't even understand with The Candyman. I've seen this show, like, ten times. So it's okay. It, it's in good company to have horror movie rules that really only exist to tell the story. And I also watched Gremlins 2, the new batch for this as well. Did you? And I like how in the second one they kind of gave a little, you know, poke in the ribs to that rule. They They had one of the guys in the tower being like, well, isn't midnight arbitrary? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, oh, they know it. And they don't care. So a couple of interesting things I found interesting is uh, Billy's dad. I need to remember his name. Um, Hoyt Axton. I guess he is a singer and a songwriter. He wrote uh, the Jeremiah Was a Bullfrog song for Three Dog Night. Oh, wow. Which, pretty great song. I know. And then uh, I also learned that, uh, well, one thing I noticed that I didn't notice ever before is that Billy's car that that is having problems all the time in the movie, forcing him to walk and not escape town, is a is an AMC Gremlin. That was the first car my parents had when I was uh, when I was born. They had a turd brown AMC Gremlin, and there's not no reason to say it other than it it was a terrible car, and it did break down. I can confirm that that car was broken down a lot. So. You know, the amount of, uh, you know, nice little touches and references that this movie had was quite astounding. I mean, I noticed there was an Indiana Jones reference right off the bat <laughs> with, um, you know, I think it was the Rock and Ricky billboard at the beginning. Yeah. They had an E.T. doll thrown in there somewhere. They had, then of course, you know, they have multiple Looney Tunes references, Warner Brother references. I kept thinking to myself, especially during the scene where the gremlins were all watching Snow White in the movie theater, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and having a wonderful time. I thought, wow, if you made this today, the licensing requirements would be a nightmare. How could they get this done? It's funny, uh, Joe Dante said, we have to use Snow White. He said, first of all, it has dwarves in it, because they're nice and they're small and they sing. And then they thought, and it just the... contrast of these evil little gremlins that have already killed people and done terrible things, flashing people and shooting people, you know, guns, shooting at folks, um, are now sitting there singing along being cute to to this movie, which I thought was really fun, funny scene, for sure. You know, I can tell you from experience, it has the same effect on children. They're, they can be running around, coloring on the walls, throwing things, doing whatever, put on the right Disney movie, boom. Now they're cute and happy and singing all That's awesome and true. Um, you know, one thing that I noticed that was kind of hilarious to me is that in many ways in this movie, 
Billy was the predecessor to the, you know, the millennial stereotype. He's clearly out of school, still living with his parents in the house. He's prioritizing pets. He's curious about other cultures. I mean, seriously, this guy, he <laughs> set the blueprint. I thought it was a little bit... I, I understand what you're saying. I thought he was working because that was because his dad was struggling as an inventor. I, I kind of thought he had other aspirations, but worked at the bank so he could help provide. But maybe that was just my... It's funny how you look at things uh, differently. Um, well, I just thought it was funny because even though there were several um, synopses that I saw online that said that Billy was a teen, he really didn't seem like he was a teenager to me. And especially, I don't, I don't think a teenager is allowed to work as a teller at a bank. Maybe they were back in the 80s. I guess we'd have to ask somebody. <laughs> I do think that it was interesting. It was one of his first um, acting roles, and he really didn't do much after it for, for years. Um, but I, I think he does great in the movie. I think you are sympathetic to him. Um, I, I don't know. I, I felt like he was effective for being his main, mainly his only role. Oh, yeah. And then also, you know, we had young Corey Feldman in this movie. Which so was good. Great. Yeah. I read online that in the original script, because... You know, if people thought it was weird that a guy who was, you know, at the very, at the very latest, late teens, was hanging out with this 12-year-old kid, it was because in the original script, Billy was supposed to be the same age. And they aged him up later. Well, they had to really stretch to get him around uh, Billy. Uh, to have him bring his Christmas tree over to him was a little bit of a stretch, but it was fun. I did like the inventions. I mean, I thought they were hilarious, and every time they made me laugh, like the the bathroom buddy, and and when uh, when the uh, the man who I guess he didn't really sell the Mogwai to Billy's dad, but when he showed up and he had already seen the uh, the smokeless ashtray that all it does is smoke, that made me laugh too. I thought that was fun. I really liked the the orange juice machine. How yeah. There were about, oh, I would say eight oranges in there, but when it exploded, it was enough pulp for, like, an entire row. <laughs> um, pulp amplifier. So I did hear that uh, Furbies, you know, remember the toy Furby? Oh, I do. I had one, and I would love to tell them this story after you go. Well, go ahead. Um, feel free. Well, I somebody, one of my friends in high school, she gave me a Furby when I was a senior because I had commented that I thought they were cute. And it was a really cute toy. And when you first get the Furby, you have to, quote unquote, teach them how to talk. You have to interact with it. And as you interact with the Furby, it learns more words. It will eventually tell you what its name is if you prompt it, things like that. My Furby's name was Micho. That's how he pronounced his name. And I thought he was adorable. And I loved him. I set him up on my dresser at night. Well, one night, in the middle of the night, about 1 a.m., 
my Furby woke up and started shrieking his name repeatedly. <laughs> Meecho! Meecho! Over and over and over. And I shot up in bed. I was so scared. I got up. I like, and I was panicking because, you know, I had just been jolted from sleep by this thing screaming at me. And I could not find the off button. And he was continuing to scream. So I threw him against the wall. And that was the end of Meecho. <laughs> Well, that's a great story. I have a similar one with my brother's Teddy Ruxpin that the batteries died. And then later on, we heard this noise coming from his room and it just had started up like the battery had enough juice in it that it started. But it sounded like like the kid uh, Danny on uh, The Shining going red, 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 like that type of voice. Uh, I don't know what he was saying, but that was pretty creepy, too. And I think after that, Josh, my brother, had to keep turning it around away from him, just in case. Like he, the the eyes became suddenly <laughs> evil to to Josh. Yes. But anyway, Furbies do look a lot like the Mogwai, and uh, and of course there was a lawsuit over that, and I guess some money was exchanged, and Warner Brothers was fine later about it. There must have been enough cash. Um, it was, I guess, a seven-figure settlement. So, anyway, and they did have to redesign the Furby so that they looked a little bit different, but they still pretty much look like the Mogwai. Um, well, I don't know if you've seen that meme on the internet, but since the Furbies do have their eyes pointed forward on the front of their head, that's how we know that they're a predator. <laughs> Just like the Gremlins. That's great. So... For you, what do you think it is about this movie that it's endured for so long? Um, I think that it feels like a Christmas movie, which um, there are parts of it that feel Christmassy. The town, um, the, you know, as, as Billy walks to and from town through that square, which, by the way, that that a lot of that set is the same set used in... Uh, uh, the Hill Valley um, town of Back to the Future. So if you, if the theater and some of the f storefronts that looks familiar to you, they're the same in, as in Back to the Future. So that has that timeless kind of a uh, uh, small town uh, that's been around, you know, for a hundred years kind of feel to it. Um, I think that some of the charm is is the rules, even though they're weird and they don't make sense. The, I think as a kid, you're told rules all the time. And, of course, something so unique and different is going to have some rules to it. And as a kid, you learn, you're always tempted to break every rule, wondering what's going to happen. And how would you not, if you were given that as as a younger person, that like I was probably, I don't know how old I was, eight or so, nine when this movie came out, probably a little older, I don't know, um, you, you'd be tempted to go, well, what happens if you put water on it? To me, I think there's a charm to that that feels um, like something that would be attractive to a kid. Plus, gremlins are naughty. I mean, there's something about being naughty as a kid where you can let loose and do and a lot of them are doing adult-like things, but they're doing it in a childlike way. I think that really appeals to everybody. I agree. <laughs> I think another thing that probably 
talked about last time with the seasonal association, like how the movie Halloween is forever associated with Halloween. Giving it the Christmas time association is a guarantee that on an annual basis, people will come back and they will revisit this movie. And if they like it, which, you know, we obviously do, then it's something that can be part of a tradition. I think so. I think that, um, that there, not everyone likes Christmas movies, let's be honest. I mean, my favorite Christmas movies are this one, uh, Scrooged. I really love Scrooged. I love darker, funny movies. Even Christmas Vacation is a darker, funny movie. Um, the, the, the real heartfelt stuff, I try. I mean, I guess I'm broken inside. And so, to me, this is the closest I can get, maybe, to a Christmas movie without puking my guts out. And maybe that sounds a little rough, but true. I mean, I grew up on those same movies that, you know, we just talked about as being dark. My favorite telling of A Christmas Carol is Scrooged. So, that's always great. But if you think about it, A Christmas Carol itself is, it has the elements of a horror movie. That is a story about a man who's being haunted in order to change his ways. That's right. It's a horror movie. As a matter of fact, FX took it to the next level either last year or the year before, I don't remember, and they made a legitimate horror story out of A Christmas Carol starring Guy Pearce, which was fairly shocking. Hmm. And we can get into that some other time. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Wow, I was pretty blown away. Our next movie is... Krampus. While the holiday season represents the most magical time of year, ancient European folklore warns of Krampus, a horned beast that punishes naughty children at Christmas time. When dysfunctional family squabbling causes young Max to lose his festive spirit, it unleashes the wrath of the fearsome demon. As Krampus lays siege to the Engel home, the family must band together to save one another from a monstrous fate. Well, I absolutely love the movie Krampus. Um, I watched it for, I think, the third time by myself. And then when we had a, a group full of younger people in their 20s and, and teens, I, I threw the movie on again and watched it with a group. Uh, my wife hadn't seen it, and... It was a favorite. Everyone thought it was funny. They thought it was fun. They loved um, the characters in it. They loved the horror. And it was a a hit across the board. There wasn't anyone that said that they didn't like the movie. So I also really like this movie. Uh, I lived in Europe for about three years. I lived in Italy where Krampus isn't as much of a thing. It's more popular in Germany, but it seems fitting that we're filming this on December 6th because Krampusnacht was last night, and that's the festival where they have Krampus come through town on a, you know, in a parade. Usually there's several Krampus, you know, representations. And a lot of these costumes are absolutely terrifying. And most of the people that do it get up on stilts. So these Krampus depictions, all of them are like nine feet tall. They have the chains and the claws and the switches, the bags. 
and the facial features that they choose. In this particular movie, I thought the way that they had it look like Krampus was wearing Santa Claus's face that had been cut off and put <laughs> over his own. Yes. That was that was very effective as far as horror goes. But I've I've seen a lot of different depictions of Krampus and they're all horrifying. Just nightmare inducing. <laughs> so I was really excited when I heard this movie was coming out, um, you know, about six years ago now, and I was very, you know, beyond thrilled to discover that uh, Michael Darty was directing, who also directed um, Trick or Treat, yep. which is a favorite of mine. And even some Most of the creatures, but... some of the creatures remind me of um, Little Sam when he takes his mask off in Trick or Treat. Yes, he definitely has a distinctive style with his creatures, and it's really cool. I think I uh, thought that um, some of the, some of the creatures that were featured in Krampus, particularly the toys and the little gingerbread men cookies, uh, I didn't know whether I should giggle or cover my face with them. <laughs> they were the Jack in the Box. Oh, I didn't even know what to do with that. It looked so silly, but I was so scared at the same time. Well, I think, to me, the, the uh, gingerbread men were an homage to gremlins, in my opinion. I thought that... Yeah, they did have a good level of you know, mischief about them. I wasn't scared they were going to kill anybody in the family, but they seemed like they were definitely trying to be a menace. Well, I thought that the the showdown with them in the kitchen reminded me, I guess, of of Gremlins in that way. Well, um, and then, of course, those Christmas cookies spawned the best line in the movie, which is when Howard says, Sweetie, I just got my ass kicked by a bunch of Christmas cookies. <laughs> I think I can handle it. <laughs> so, one thing, I think both these movies really tie together, Gremlins and uh, Krampus. Gremlins was paying homage to the Christmas movies of the 50s and 60s, I think. Like, It's a Wonderful Life. In fact, It's a Wonderful Life was shown in, uh, I think, both these movies, a small clip. Um, This movie, though, begins like so many... It has so many reflections of 90s um, Christmas movies. I mean, the beginning... Um, showing people maltreating each other, um, the holiday rush, people fighting to get toys and being tased, um, like the Black Friday type stuff. To me, we've seen this before. I, I don't remember the name of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where he's trying to get his kid a certain toy and there's all sorts of violence, jingle all the way. Um, but it feels like Home Alone. There's aspects of this movie, it feels like Home Alone. It feels like, um, Christmas Vacation. I mean, I think some of the family members feel like shadows or mirrors of characters in Christmas Vacation. And I think that's on purpose. I think that uh, Michael Doherty loved those movies and wanted to, and in his mind, maybe thought, what would happen if we actually added some teeth to these 90 holiday movies? And I think that's the result, and and the and the way to do it was to go old school, into folklore. I think. Well, and as you said, I just could not believe how beautifully these movies paired together. 
like it was a perfect double feature because they had so many of the same elements they had that sense of mischief they had some legitimately terrifying moments they had people banding together to try to stop the creature element i mean the list goes on and i really really enjoyed both these films and the way that they worked together even though it was, you know, movies that we had just arbitrarily decided upon to watch. It was truly a great surprise to see how well they matched. Well, and I think I, the acting talent in this movie, I forgot Tony Collette was in this movie. And she helps make this movie, even the most crazy aspects of it, believable. I think she always does that in every movie. Plus, she's kind of a horror queen. Yeah, talk about an underrated Scream Queen. She was in um, The Sixth Sense, Hereditary. This right. one. I mean, she's amazing. She is. Um, Definitely, this was a high caliber cast. I thought they worked together very well. The family at the beginning, it's like you said, we had a lot of animosity. I wasn't sure who we were going to be rooting for, other than the obvious Max, the sweet little boy who just wanted to have a nice Christmas. And it seemed like nothing was working out for him. But as things started to go south, the family really did come together. Even, you know, drunk Aunt Dorothy, who had nothing but bad things to say about everybody. She was She's great. there with the shotgun, ready to go. You know, like, <laughs> well, they... it, was nice. it was nice to see the family come together, even though... Unfortunately, um, things did not work out for them. <laughs> well, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the in-law, I mean, the, the relatives that showed up, to me, right away, you're, you, you think, well, I've seen this in Christmas Vacation, but these people were actually, they were more like actual people, first of all, and, uh, and they, in some ways, they were worse than Cousin Eddie and his family um, because they and were actual Eddie people. Eddie and his family really didn't seem to be mean-spirited. And yeah. I don't know about the wife, but Howard definitely had a mean streak. Well, I, I think that um, they did a great job of putting two families together where they would have a lot of conflict. You have the NRA-loving, conservative um family that that comes in and uh and then i think tony collette and and her family were more liberal and and i think that they they started that out in a great way to make you cheer for one side and the other at different times and then to have them both have to come together to face to to put aside kind of what people consider the biggest differences especially anymore with social media and the news they had to basically put those aside and, and try to work together, which is kind of a spirit of Christmas movie. Exactly. And plus, once again, Howard gets one of the best lines in the movie by saying to Adam Scott's character, hey, I'm really sorry for thinking that you were such a spineless dick all these years. <laughs> <laughs> like, great. what an apology, Howard. Good job. You know? Spirit of Christmas. Back Sarah and Tom remind me of, in Christmas Vacation, Todd and Margot, the next-door neighbors uh, to the Griswolds. Um, I know that, I, I know Todd and Margot would not eat mac and cheese with hot dogs for Christmas. Oh, I, I can tell you they won't. Um, 
But yeah, the so basically the setup is this, these families are together for the holidays that none of them really want to be. None of them really want to be even with their own family, except Max. Um, and the, the sad part is, is when Max finally gives up, that's what summons Krampus in this tale. Um, and so, um, there's no, like, there's no room for tradition with these people. They've given up on liking each other, on even trying, putting any effort. They've given up really on tradition. The only one that, the two people in the movie that haven't given up on Christmas are, um, Max and what's the grandmother's name? They call her Omi. It, is that, does that just mean grandmother? I don't know. Maybe I'm that's, not, sir? I don't know. Well, I think that that seems like what was indicated. Okay. So hit the grandmother who is, I believe German. And that's where we get, um, she's the one that explains what Krampus is. And um, she has, I, it's funny because a lot of the, the 90s Christmas movies are claymation, animated, and they actually, I love that they actually do a scene. Her flashback is done in animation, and it's dark. It's terrible. I mean, it's kind of like the Santa story in Gremlins. Omi, the grandmother's story, is just awful. And, and they give it a visualization, too. Yeah. They try to, they, I mean, they soften the blow with the claymation, but it's awful. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love some of the other nods to, like, Christmas Vacation. I noticed the little advent calendar. Of course, these advent calendars, when you open them up, they, they always look a little creepy to me. Some of the old-fashioned drawings of of Santa and whatnot, but these really take it to another level of like creepy snowman, creepy and, and kind of foreshadow what's going to happen in the movie. Um, so the horror part of this, you, you talked about, I think that that Jack in the box is just awful. I, I, I think that some of the scariest creatures in in any movie I've seen are in this movie, in this little PG-13 Christmas movie. So, congrats, because they, they really do it. I have to say, the snowmen that appear every time a family member, quote-unquote, dies or gets taken by Krampus, that appears in the yard... I found those to be terrifying. So no oh, upsetting. Yeah, and uh, even like you said, even Krampus himself, how uh, he would jump from house to house, and uh, his posture and the way he moved it was really scary. Uh, which I love. I just loved all of that. I guess uh, some of the houses in the neighborhood are actually houses from other movies, like. Kevin McAllister's house in Home Alone is one of the houses all destroyed there. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't pick up on some of that, but I'm sure that our brains pick up on it a bit. Um, so I, I guess the legend of Krampus in this story and what has happened, it the ending of the movie really leaves it up to the viewer. Um, the the result of this movie, I, I think there's two ways that. I saw it that I that I could um, explain it. Did, did you 
What did you feel about the end of the movie? Maybe describe a little bit of it and what you thought happened there. So, and again, even though we already said this, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know the end, push stop now. So after Max has his final showdown with Krampus, and Krampus throws him into the fiery pit, and he wakes up, and it appears that it was all a bad He comes downstairs on Christmas morning, the whole family's there, they appear to be reasonably getting along, everybody's happy, they're doing the whole Christmas tree, presents, Christmas morning thing, people are open, taking their turns opening gifts, and then when it comes time for Max to open his, he opens it up, and it's Omi's bell from Krampus that had been a, a symbol of Krampus and his, you know, ominous presence throughout. And then, as Max holds the bell, camera zooms out, and we see that the whole family, that motif, isn't captured within a snow globe in Krampus's lair. So at this point, it's up to the viewer to decide, is this simply a vision and Krampus is keeping an eye on them for next year? Or did he take them all and they're stuck in some sort of limbo because now they no longer exist on the earthly plane and they now belong to Krampus? <laughs> so what, do you have a, a, a choice there? Do What do you think is what happened? Well... Given that I think this movie has more elements that lean toward the horror side, I think it's option B. I think that Krampus took them, and they belong to him now. I I like that idea, mostly because every other, especially 90s, but every Christmas movie, the conflict ends and everybody's happily ever after. The idea of them having to live in this hell of Christmas morning, which, you know, I, I do love Christmas. Don't get me wrong. It sounds like I don't. But, you know, as an adult, after the, when the wrapping paper is everywhere and like we have three dogs and they're chewing up the wrapping paper and some of the things that you bought are like forgotten and lost immediately, like where's the piece to that? The, you're missing a main piece to this toy that you just barely opened, and it's gone now. There's, it's not to be found. Um, it, it does get a little bit the com, the commercialism of Christmas, and it gets lost sometimes. You know, especially when you know when Grandma and Grandpa spoils your, the kids more than you do, and you're like a couple hours into opening these gifts, and you're thinking, there's no way that. At this point, sometimes it doesn't mean anything. So, to me, there are times that Christmas morning has felt like limbo. <laughs> so, I, I get that. Um, and, and I think that that's the... I think that's the trick, is how do you make Christmas mean something? How do you make the gifts that we give? And and I think that's what... They're, they're, that's the question that we're left with no matter what is what do we do to make, if, if whether you're religious or not, to make this time of year special and make it actually mean something that, that lasts. And I think it is hard sometimes. So given that I feel that the family didn't make it, this ending kind of left me a little bit conflicted. I felt similar at the end of the first season of American Horror Story where 
the entire family died and mm. they were stuck in the house as ghosts yeah. but they were all happy to be together so i'm just i had that same feeling watching this family because i think they're stuck in limbo they're on some sort of spiritual plane that you know can't be accessed by people of this earth but it's still nice that they're together and they're and happy maybe maybe the fact that they are together and there still is that love between the family maybe that's the, the Christmas spirit maybe that's the way that this is I don't know I like it I think that uh, I, I I can see where you're coming from and uh, it does feel there are moments of time and, and memories of Christmas in my childhood and Christmas with my own family that are special and that you do kind of reach that point. If we could save them in a snow globe and go back to them, it would be nice, I would say. So, I mean, that's a more positive way of looking at that, I think. Um, a couple fun things about this movie that, that I found in looking into it. Um, I know that the you probably saw this, but the gingerbread men, one of them is voiced by uh, Seth Green from Robot Chicken, and another one is voiced by Justin Roy, Roiland, who does Rick and Morty, both Rick and Morty's voice. So that was kind of fun um, to have those little cameos for voices. I don't know that I picked it out or could pick it out, but... It was kind of fun. And that's another commonality it has with Gremlins, with Howie Mandel as the voice of Gizmo. As well as, uh, I think his name is Michael Winslow, who did all the Police Academy noises. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. So he's he was a Gremlin as well. He made, he did voices for several of the Gremlins. So you're right. There is a, a tie-in there. Um, anything you know, else? I gotta say, even though we did this beautiful Christmas creature feature. When I was deciding what movie I was going to pick, I was actually really surprised at the very large library of Christmas-themed horror movies that are available. There are quite a few. I, I think you could argue that Scrooge and the different type of Scrooge movies, like you said, are horror movies. Um, Scrooge definitely has some aspects of horror. Um, and I think that's why I like it, but some of them like Black Christmas and, and some of the, you know, slasher movies set in, in, during Christmas, I think, I don't know if they pass your, your Christmas litmus test, to be honest. Um, they maybe they do. Don't. <laughs> I think these do. Uh, I think that, uh, especially if you're getting burned out watching the same Christmas movies, to throw these in the mix, especially after you watch Home Alone, Home Alone 2, and you could get burned out with that. Throwing on Krampus would really clear, cleanse the palate a bit, I think, in a positive way. Or especially if you're watching, you know, like the, you know, 12 Dates to Christmas and The Christmas Prince, The Princess Switch castle christmas all those those are just the ones i can think of off the top of my head but there's all sorts of um you know the same formulaic christmas rom-coms again this is just a beautiful palette. and you guys can't see me but i did the 
shows just because. Voila, you know? <laughs> well, I have four boys, and so my poor wife never watches any of those, and I would rather her not ever know about those movies. If, if somehow we can keep that from happening, that would be great. Um, so uh, just to, to finish up, is there anything else about Krampus that you wanted to talk about? I didn't, but how would you recommend these movies be used? I think most people, I think a lot of young people haven't seen Gremlins. And I think that um, that they would be surprised. I think it, it would be surprising how well Gremlins holds up. They may think, like you, that they've seen it or they've, they've seen enough of it to know what it's about. But I think that... Um, I think it'd be fun to expose younger, and, and I have done that with my kids, expose kids to this show when they're, you know, seven, eight, nine. Of course, you know, some people would probably think I'm a monster for doing that, but I think right around that age where they're starting to doubt Santa that this is a, a perfect age to watch Gremlins. Um, of course, my kids grew up with Halloween props throughout the house and severed legs and heads and so maybe I maybe I'm not somebody that should ever uh, give advice on that maybe uh, maybe a skull in the fireplace yeah maybe a skull in the fireplace currently in the fireplace here at our house um, I think Krampus again um, there there are I think it's a little touchier because of the horror there's some really scary images there. I, I think that that same seven or eight year old watching Krampus may not sleep and, and it may actually upset him. So I would wait a little bit on that. But I do think that, you know, in a mixed group of older people, um, you know, I think it, it's a fun one to put on, especially if somebody doesn't know what to expect. I think they'll, as it starts out, they think they'll think that they're watching an, another 90s um, holiday movie and then when it takes this turn it gets darker and darker I th at least with my wife I think she she's not a real horror fan and she she absolutely loved it she said that was really fun and funny so and that's a wrap for tonight's episode of the dark art thanks for joining us for our Christmas creature feature we sincerely appreciate you letting us add a bit of darkness to your day until next time, friends.